Let's go to the book of uh, Mark, chapter number 10 this morning. Mark, chapter 10. And I want to read these uh, passages of Scripture for us together, and then we'll let you be seated. Um, let me just say, first off, my wife and I, we uh, had a real good time over on the west side of the state last week, and we're able to uh, go to Pentwater between Ludington and uh, Muskegon, yeah, and right there in the middle. And uh, we went over there, and beautiful. The lake was just perfect and had a good time uh, climbing up and down the sand dunes. Well, good time being on top of the sand dunes, not necessarily climbing up them, but um, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and I uh, enjoyed that. Appreciate so many of your prayers for us, and uh, praying that we'd be able to have a good time away. Appreciate that. Well, when we come to a, um, a text of Scripture uh, like we're at this morning, um, I'm reminded of the importance or my uh, encouragement of preaching through a, a book of the Bible. We're going to be in Mark this morning, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to take a pause on Mark and come back to it. But my intention is to go through the entire book of Mark. And what that'll do to us is it forces us to come face to face with scriptures that sometimes we might rather avoid. Um, and I think it would be very easy for myself to come to a passage of scripture like this, especially on a Monday or a Tuesday, and think, eh, maybe next week, and skip it, and we'll come back to it later. Uh, but these texts of scripture are so important. I was telling Brother Ben as we left for vacation, last Sunday was kind of a heavy text, and this Sunday it's a heavy subject. And I said, I couldn't have picked two things more heavy to bracket my vacation with, you know, just leave on a heavy note, come back on a heavy note. Uh, but um, the Lord knows and his timing is right. Um, but what we want to do is we want to look at scripture and we want scripture to correct us. We don't want to dance around the texts that bother us. Um, and we want to make sure that we are looking in the scripture and letting it be what looks into us as we do that together. And so I'm going to read our text of scripture together this morning from Mark 10. And we're going to read uh, Mark 10, and we'll read um, down through verse number uh, 14 of our text this morning. And then I want to read for us, after we pray, uh, our, our constitutional amendment that we had that fits into this subject as well. And so if you're there, uh, let's read together, beginning in verse number 1. <clears throat> and he arose from thence, and cometh unto the coast of Judea, by the far side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again, and he was what? He taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they that are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whithersoever whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me. 
Forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the word of God together this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that um, the words of God will be what are heard this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us to set aside our ideas and let the scripture speak to us from the plainness of the text. Lord, I pray, Father, that you'd help us to come at this with a humble heart this morning, that our eyes would be open, our ears would be tuned in to what the Word of God has to say. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen. You can be seated there if you would. It's been just a little over two years ago now um, that we, the deacon board, and at the time Pastor Casey I was a senior pastor of the church, and I was working with Pastor Casey, and we crafted an addendum to our Constitution. And the addendum um, reads as follows, and I want to read it to all of us here again this morning. At Shelby Bible Church, we believe in marriage. We affirm that God created us male and female, and that a person's biological sex at birth is a divine gift from God and should not be altered or denied but embrace for the glory of God. We affirm that marriage was designed by God to be the covenantal, complementary, lifelong union of a man and a woman, and that only legitimate marriage is the joining of one man and one woman to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. We affirm that any sexual act outside of the marriage covenant is a violation of God's order and is sinful. Only such marriages as described above may be conducted on church property and or officiated by the pastoral staff or members of our congregation. Now that's a very bold and heavy statement. And when we make that statement, we don't do so with a sneer on our face or a condescension. But we do that actually with a tear in our eye and a brokenness in our heart that in the country that we live in, we have to be that specific about what marriage is. Um, and who knew that things would change the way they have? And we also want to make sure that we stand in a place as believers of saying, yes, that is sin, and yes, Jesus still loves sinners. And we want to call sinners to the gospel, not run them from the gospel, because somehow or another we set ourselves up as superior to sinners. We've said before and we say again, every person in this room is marred by sin. Every adult in this room knows what it is to have sexual sin in your life. Whether it's simply a thought or it is an impulse or is an act, we have all failed the Lord in that area in some way. And so we don't walk into this in some spirit of supremacy or we're the moral police of our society, but we come into it with saying, This is what the gospel says. This is where the scripture says, and we must stand here. Now, here's the reality of it. As we stand here in our society, they will say things against us for doing so. Well, that's full of hate. They said things like this about another preacher once. They said he was full of a devil. He must be possessed of a devil. He does his works in the power of Satan. And they said that about the Lord Jesus. And so we cannot shrink from the position of Scripture to accommodate the world or to accommodate even other believers who claim to be believers but deny these principles. We must stand firmly on this, but we do so with 
a humble heart and an open hands to reach to those who need the help of the gospel. And that's always a delicate balance. And it is a frustrating thing in a world to where everything has to be accomplished in a 30-second soundbite or shorter to have a multi-level conversation of saying, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you are condemned before God. Yes, if you don't repent, you will burn eternally in hell. But Jesus is still the Savior. Generally, you get, yes, you are a sinner, and you're shut down. The conversation is so much bigger, and the hope is so much greater. And we have to faithfully stand there with a loving heart. Now, <clears throat> as we do that, as we consider where we stand as a church, and we consider the importance of marriage and its role in society, I, I want to remind us again that marriage, Jesus is going to define it when we get into our text in a little bit. But I want you to see the brackets of our text this morning. We opened or ended last week with the idea of servant-hearted leadership, of the idea that leadership was not looking for preeminence. And by the way, marriage is not about preeminence. It's about a heart of servanthood, of humbling ourselves to serve our spouse. And then we see on the other end of that, when he talks about divorce, Jesus ends by saying, suffer the children to come unto me. And so we're reminded that we're in the context, we're in the context over here of servant-hearted leadership, and then on the end of it, he's saying, and make sure the children aren't hindered from coming either. And I think one of the greatest travesties of divorce in our society is how many children have been pushed away from the gospel by it. And how many people have been pushed away from hearing the message? The greatest discipleship tool for your children is a mom and dad who love each other and love the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our children's programs put together, all of our curriculums, and we spend hours planning curriculum and planning programs and activities. But I want to say to you this morning, moms and dads, you are the greatest discipleship tool that your children will ever have available to them. And you have a great responsibility there. Now, let me also say that when we preach from this text this morning, I don't preach from this text from a place of moral superiority either. In August 26th of next month, Susie and I will celebrate 20 years of marriage. And um, it didn't take us long to find out that we married a sinner. It took her a little longer to figure it out that I was a sinner, but uh, some of you are laughing, and that hurts my feelings a little bit. Um, the reality is, you know on paper you're marrying a sinner, right? You know theologically, and then you realize, oh my goodness, have I married a crazy person? And that was my wife talking, not me. I would never say that about her. So the fact is, we have arguments and we have failed one another and we have wounded one another at times. We have said words we wish we could take back. And any marriage in this room that is honest, you've done the same thing. And in those arguments, the only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we run to the cross and understand that it is not our goodness that is going to keep us together as a couple, but it is God's grace that binds us together. And it is God's grace in your life that will do the same thing. And so I, I challenge you this morning to listen to the text well 
And I want to read this opening statement and then we'll get into the text. The danger I think of many today is to listen to the sermon with your past in full view. And you look into your past and you grieve over what you should have, could have, would have done. And you can sit there with regret and even living in that regret as we sit here this morning. Let me caution you not to do that. And then on the other hand, some will sit here and listen with their future in mind. Well, what if my marriage doesn't pan out? What if I find myself single? Can I remarry? Is it okay biblically for me to find another spouse? Or do I have to stay single? I can't imagine being alone. In both scenarios, if that's your heart, you're missing the point of the message. It's not the point to live in condemnation over a past sin or mistake. Nor is this looking for a loophole to get out of the marriage you're currently in. Neither of those should be on our mind this morning. But what Jesus is trying to do, and he's going to drive us to, is seeing the original intent. What God originally intended for marriage to be, and he lays that out in clear, plain language for us. And then we will try to do some pastoral application in this. Jesus turns the beginning, and so let us turn to the text and follow him as he goes there. Now, that's a long introduction I want you to look first off in this beginning text when these Pharisees come to him. And they say to him in verse number two, and the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife tempting him? The Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus. They've been trying to do this all along. Um, They want him to stumble in his words. They want to catch him in his words. And I think it's in uh, chapter 12 and 13, they actually use that phrase. They try to catch him in his words. Uh, the, same, the word testing here, the tempting here, is the same idea of what Satan was trying to do in chapter 1 and 13 when he put him to the test. They wanted to catch him off guard and try to trip him up, kind of like a, a, an interview. Uh, interviewer would do today of trying to get the I gotcha moment where they back him into a corner and now there's no room to back out and you have to say something that will shock everybody and you're going to lose supporters in doing it and we got you. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do. And they're coming at it from two different schools of thought. There is the, what would be the conservative thought, and I'll stand to the right side for the conservatives. So the Shammai was the school of thought over here. The Shammai, they said the only reason that is legitimate for divorce is for unchastity. And so if someone was unfaithful, that was the only legitimate reason to write a bill of divorcement. Very rigid, no room for wiggle room at all. But then the Hillel group on this side over here, this group of people, they said, nah, for any cause. It doesn't matter. So they kind of had... You know, they had bills of divorcement on tear-off pads, you know, and they'd fill them out, tear it off, fill it out, tear it off. They just had a bunch of those circulating, and it was for any cause, and they had no boundaries on this idea of divorce. And by the way, this is where our society stands today. We stand today that divorce is a dime a dozen, and we throw those out as if they're no big deal, and divorce is very treated very lightly. And, and to the grief of society, it has done so. And let me say this, when, when we as a culture turn from the order of God in marriage or the order of God in sexuality, there will be no end to the number of disorders that we have to label. And do we not see in our society an increasing and ever-increasing number of disorders 
that we deal with and people's emotions and people's mind and thinking. All of these things are disordered. Why are they so disordered? Because we left God's order. And inside God's order, there is purpose and protection. And outside of God's order, there is disorder and confusion. We are struggling with this in a society that is so broken by this disorder. I I challenge us this morning to not let marriage become a flippant thing in your mind, but let it stay a sacred thing and teach our children how sacred it is. We've gotten so flippant with marriage, and we we know of the generation past, the idea of, you know, going to Las Vegas and getting this quick marriage, and and then there was a song that was popular a few years ago, and one of the lines in the song is, I'm looking for something dumb to do. Hey, baby, I think I want to marry you. And then the next line, basically, and if we wake up tomorrow morning and we change our mind, no big deal, we'll just, we'll get it undone. And it was just a, a flippant thing. And I've, I've actually seen people use that song at their wedding because it's a funny song and it's ha-ha and no big deal and it trivializes what God has called sacred. And so when we look at the text, these two groups of people are pitting the Lord Jesus Christ against one another, trying to get him to side either on the conservative side or on the liberal side so that he'll lose part of his audience in the midst of this. They were doing their best to, um, uh, to pit Jesus against Moses. When he says, what does Moses say? And then they want to get him disenchanted with by his followers. I think even there is some desire here to get him on Herod's bad side. Because if you remember, when John the Baptist went in and confronted Herod, what did he confront him with? It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And then what happens is Herodias has John the Baptist executed by her Uh, connivering and her manipulating of the circumstances and now John the Baptist is beheaded and they're thinking hey this subject of marriage got rid of one of these yahoos maybe it'll work with this guy too and so they bring this up to entrap him and to get him in a bad place politically and, and and with the people around him and so they're doing their best to do it now Matthew Henry makes this comment and he says how often under the pretense of advisement folks are attempting to ensnare the counselor And how many times I've seen this happen, and I'm sure if I were to put Pastor Casey on the spot this morning, but I'm sure he could testify to this. On more than one occasion, the question is asked with the answer they want already built into the question. And they're coming to Jesus asking the question because they have a hook in there somewhere. And it's as if when the question comes, you're kind of chewing real tenderly because I'm not exactly sure where the hook's at. What are you trying to get? And Matthew Henry's advice goes on, and I like his advice. He said, just stand your ground. Just stand your ground. Because I'm not sure exactly where you're coming from, but here's where I stand. Now, I I love you dearly, and I'm sure you're trying your best to get an honest answer. I'll assume that. But this is where I stand. And he gives that advice to stand our ground. You know, I've heard people come with a statement like this. Why would a loving God insist that a person live their entire life unfulfilled and alone in a loveless marriage? Sounds very Hollywoodish, doesn't it? Just, I'm, my heart's already bleeding for you. But that same God would ask for a martyr to live 20 and 30 years in prison for his glory but you can't endure a few years in a bad marriage. 
Now, I'm not trying to scold us this morning. I am trying to show in contrast how they, sometimes God doesn't always call us to happiness and lollipops. Sometimes for the sake of the gospel, he calls us to tears and grieving. And, and I would say this morning that that premise has two faults to it. First off, it's a faulty premise because it states that the fulfillment of a full life is only found in marriage. And let me make something very, very clear this morning. Your spouse is not there to fulfill you. They're not going to be the fulfillment of everything you want. It's a Hollywood concept that somehow or another you're going to marry this person and all your emotional needs will always be met. The fact is, you knew very quick, you don't have to be married for five minutes to find out that ain't the case. You're going to be disappointed and you're going to disappoint You see, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and we partner together for his glory. And yes, God uses marriage in a beautiful and a wonderful thing to minister to one another through marriage, but you have to understand it is a sinner ministering to you, and they are going to fail you. And so the idea that somehow another marriage is the fulfillment of everything and it's the only means of fulfillment, and second false premise in this statement is a person who is a child of God is ever truly alone. Because we are not alone. And let me just say this morning, if you were to find yourself in a broken marriage where that marriage is hurting and you are heavy, let me make, and I feel like I need to caveat this. It should be an understood thing. We are by no means talking about somebody staying next to someone who is physically abusing. If somebody is physically abusing you, you call the police and you call them now. And I want to make sure that's very clear here. But I want to say to you that there are times where things aren't going to be always peachy and rosy. And in those moments, just because you're not getting your way, doesn't mean it's time to abandon you. And God sees what you're doing. He hears what's going on. He knows. And the Bible says that when we do what we do in secret, God will reward us openly. He will be patient and faithful in, with us in those moments. So let's look at the questions of the Pharisees this morning. Verse number two, the question comes again, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife tempting him? Jesus responds, and it's so beautiful to watch him so masterfully turn the question around and put it back in their lap and say, here, I got a question for you. So here's the question for you, he says. What does Moses say about it? And so he puts it in their hand. What did Moses command you? And the guys are kind of like, hold on a second, we we were here to ask you a question, and now you're asking us questions. And by the way, anytime you come to the Word of God to read it, be sure the Word of God is also reading you. And it's exposing what is inside of us. So the question comes, simply ask them, what does the law say? Implying that too many are seeking what they can get away with and not what God intends. Too often we're looking for a loophole instead of looking to be obedient The Pharisees half answer his question. Verse number four, he says, and they said, and they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. He says, Moses said, it's okay, we can have divorces, we're good. So now they've oversimplified what Moses had to say about divorce. And the law does make make provisions for divorce. Let me say this very clearly, the law for divorce in the Old Testament was more about the protection of the woman than it was about providing for a man an opportunity to run from wife to wife. Because he makes it very financially troubling for a man to leave his wife. 
And so it was all about protection and the encouragement of couples to stay together. And so he challenges them on this by putting it back in their lap. So then they oversimplify the message of the law, and then Jesus responds again, and he says, hey, the reason for divorce, and let's look at what Jesus says in verse number five, and he said unto them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus said, here's the problem. Moses did write that divorce was permissible in certain circumstances. However, he did so because your hearts are hard. Now, as your pastor, let me make a couple of things. I think there's two reasons the Bible gives us that divorce is what we would say grounds for divorce. Now, you may disagree here, and if you do, that's fine, um, but this is where I stand. I believe, first off, that there are grounds for divorce when there's abandonment. So when somebody simply leaves and they won't stay, you can't make somebody do something they don't want to do. And the Bible says in Corinthians, under such cases, you're not in bondage. And that's a very heavy thing. And by the way, it should be something that you are pursuing to make it right, but abandonment. And then I think also Jesus makes the exception in Matthew in this very same text in the, in the cause of fornication. And fornication being the overarching category of sexual sin where the relationship has done so. But let me say this. Jesus says, you had a reason, or Moses gave you the writing for divorce here. However, from the beginning, it wasn't so. And the reason you're still dealing with this is because our hearts are hard. How many of you understand the gospel still calls us to forgive? And I often will sit down with a couple in premarital counseling, and I'll ask a question like this, what's the deal breaker in your relationship? What's the deal breaker? What's going to be the thing where I can't get past that, I'm done? And they'll kind of look at me like, what do you mean? We love each other. There's nothing. You know, ain't no mountain high enough. No, I'm sorry. Um, you know, they're, they're just nothing going to keep us away from each other, right? And they'll look at you and say, I don't understand. And I'm like, seriously, I mean, if she burns the toast, are you going to divorce her? I mean, if he, if he loses his job, are you going to divorce him? And they're like, oh, well, I mean, an affair, I don't think I could abide that. And that statement will be made most of the time. That's the line we draw. And I would, I would challenge us this morning when we're not in that situation to begin to prepare your heart. If that heartache comes, that there is still hope for the marriage even in that heartache. That you don't have to walk away from the marriage in that moment. That there is hope to restore it because of the cross. Now I challenge you there. Jesus gives the, the wording of the hardness of their hearts. We must not divorce Christian marriage from Christian living. We are called to live like Christians in the home, and now Jesus turns and he says, from the beginning. Now he's going to take us all the way back to Genesis in chapter 1, 2, and 3, and he's going to lay out the premises of what marriage looks like. And it's almost as if he's giving these religious leaders a Sunday school lesson. And he lays it down for them. And look in verse number uh, 6. He said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And I want to point this out to you. Jesus doesn't look at these early chapters of the Bible as allegorical, but as historical. He looks at them as if they literally happened. And he said, this is a, a true statement. God created man and a woman, and he placed them in a garden, and he put them together as husband and wife. And so all of this is not an allegory, but it's a reality. From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, 
and they twain shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. From the beginning, the creator of marriage is God, not the Supreme Court. The creator of marriage is God, not the church. God is the ordainer of marriage. He's the one that put it together. And marriage is more than a contract. It is a covenant. It is a covenant before God. And a covenant is the idea of a a promise and an agreement in relationship before God and to God. When a husband and wife or a bride and a groom rather stand on this stage here and they look up and they make their vows, they are not making their vows to the people in the pews. They are not making their vows to the pastor. They are making their vows before God to one another and their promise is to God that they will stay together. It is a promise to God. It is a covenant relationship, more binding than any legal relationship. They are ending into this thing because God has defined it. We see not only the creator of marriage that he has defined it, but we also see the order of marriage. It is male and female. This is what God intended. This is not something made up. This is not something fanciful. This is not something restrictive. As a matter of fact, the majority of human history is witness to this. It is only in this day and age that we live with the all-powerful uh, all eye that we have left the idea of complementing one another in a male and female role. You see, this order of marriage was so right, and it was so good. You see, what we see in marriage in its simple definition here is two parts. And, and I say this to us because I've heard people say, well, we made a commitment to each other in private, and that's why we've been living together. That's not what God intended. There's two parts. There is a public declaration of the covenant, and there's a private consummation of the covenant. It's public, and then it is private. Both of those things should exist. And the problem, we live in a society today that people want to take the fruit of marriage in a sexual relationship, but never have the commitment of marriage inside the covenant. God intended the covenant to be there. Yes, the private consummation and it's a wonderful privilege. Somebody said years ago, and I loved it, if anybody tells you marriage is bad, remember they're testifying, not prophesying. All right? They're just telling you what it is for them. They're not prophesying what it will be for you. All right? Marriage is a wonderful institution. And it's a blessed institution by God. It was ordered. It was created by God. He has defined it. Man can't redefine it. It is order of male and female before God. And then he says this, leave and cleave. He says, a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now, here's the thing too. Let me say, young men, it takes a man to leave and cleave. In this leaving and cleaving, there is allegiance, there is dependence, and there is intentionality. It's intentional. It is something that is stated and you're stepping out of that allegiance. That means leaving mom and dad's financial provision. It's not saying mom and dad can't help us out. Thank God that mom and dad can. That's a wonderful blessing. But it is to say that you are standing on your own two feet and providing. And you are stepping out as a couple with dependence upon one another, cleaving to one another. It said in the morning service, it means leaving your mom and dad and your Xbox and marrying your wife, cleaving to. It's standing there apart from them. You know, I think we have too much of the idea that marriage is somehow or another just a game. Marriage is a created order and should be the natural goal, by the way, of maturing young people. Now, let me, let me make something very clear. I'm not saying that singlehood 
is sinful. But I'm saying God's original order is for young people to grow up, to marry, and to have children. And I'm not saying that a childless marriage is a subpar marriage because God chooses to withhold children from some marriages. But I am saying, as he said, God said, Jesus said, from the beginning, this was the order. That a man grows up, he marries, and they have children. This is the purpose. He gave that first command to to reproduce inside the bonds of marriage. So let me say, young men, pursue a wife. Because he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Young ladies, pursue a husband. Let you chase him until you catch him. That's a wonderful thing. And let me say, moms and dads, encourage it. Encourage it and guide them in it. You say, are you going to tell your children who to marry? No, but I'll be sure to tell them if they think they shouldn't. And I'll tell them who I think is a good candidate, too. I think that's a fine young man right there. I think I wouldn't trust that young man as far as I could throw him. And I'll be honest, I think moms and dads, we need to be proactive of making sure our children are around godly people and sending them into places where they can meet those godly people. I I encourage it because I think marriage is a wonderful institution that should not be discouraged. You see, here's the problem with our all-powerful I society is that we want to find ourself and we were never commissioned to do that. And by the way, if you ever really found yourself, you wouldn't like you anyway. Because you're full of you and you as a sinner. You know the wonderful benefit of marriage is that it's sanctifying. Because what I could ignore about myself, now that I'm married to that lady on the front row, I can't ignore about me. It exposes it and shows me that I need Jesus because I'm not enough. She needs Jesus through me. And so I want to encourage you to pursue marriage and make this thing that it's it's a right thing. Now, let me say this. God does give singlehood to some people. And God is sufficient to those people who God chooses to walk single. And it's not a second-tier citizen of the church. But that is the exception, not the rule. The main rule is that we would pursue marriage because it is honorable before God. And then just as a side note, as your pastor this morning, the idea, well, I'm going to write my own vows. And so when we stand before you, we're going to say these really pretty things about how we feel about one another. That's all beautiful and Disney and all that, and I appreciate it, but not here. You can do that on your honeymoon. You can do that at your reception. But when you stand here, I don't want to know how you feel about one another. What I want to know is, will you and do you? Will you and do you? Do you promise? Do you commit yourself fully? To stand before God and say, till death do us part. In sickness and in health. Because if it is God's will for you to wake up in your 40s and find your wife laying in a bed, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful? And we've seen testimony of faithful people, but see, then it's not about how you feel. It's about what you've committed to do. You see, this is a covenant before God. Will you, do you promise? And we answer, and we, in, we insist on the answer. I do. I do promise this. 
And so it's leave and cleave, allegiance, dependence, and then intentionality. And we see the union of marriage is the unity of flesh. And then, of course, the soul and the spirit. And then he says, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Let me say this this morning on this topic. Never see divorce as an option for continued relationship. Silly talk like this, and my wife and I counseled a couple early on in our ministry, and we've heard this a few other times, but this is the time it kind of hit us in the face like a bucket of cold water. We were pleading with the young lady not to leave and to come and sit down and talk, and the young man was brokenhearted about the whole thing, and we pleaded to make it, try to get them to make it right. And she goes, oh, no, 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 we're still going to be friends. And the flippancy and the silliness of that kind of statement. Let me say again, never see divorce as an option for a continued relationship, but as an abortion of a divinely ordained union. An abortion of a divinely ordained union. Divorce is to a marriage what abortion is to a child in a womb. It destroys it. And God had given life to it. And it is a sin against God. We should guard against it. So the disciples then get him alone. Jesus, what in the world? No doubt some of them were a little nervous. They're like, what in the world? This is pretty heavy teaching. He says, what what is this? And he says, let me make something very clear here. Jesus says, this is what I'm talking about. From the beginning, this was the intent. Man marries woman, stays married for life. If you divorce your spouse and marry another, you're committing adultery. If you divorce your husband and marry another, you're committing adultery. Husbands and wives, when they leave, it's adulterous to marry another. And he lays it out in a very plain line. He's not showing the exceptions at the moment. He does that in Matthew. Here he lays it out very plainly because what was the issue? These people were over here writing the laws, the bills of divorcement, and they were writing them for every reason. And I don't like the way she looks anymore. I don't like the way she talked to me. I'm tired of her mother. And they're writing them for all these different reasons. And they're passing out divorce bills and hiding behind them saying, we haven't committed adultery. We haven't committed adultery. We haven't committed adultery. I have the divorce to prove it. And so the man would marry a woman, and then he would get tired of her, and he'd look up and he says, oh, that person caught my eye. And so he writes a bill of divorcement, and he runs after this one over here. And then he writes her a bill of divorcement, runs after another. And they're being divorced for every cause. And Jesus says, here's the thing. I don't care how many legal bills of divorcement you're holding up. I can see right through them and see the adultery that's in your heart. Because adultery was at the heart of the whole question. And Jesus always has the way of getting to the heart. So this morning, we cannot hide a heart of adultery behind a bill of divorcement. It'll never work. And so these summary statements I want to give to you. We say, number one, marriage is a supernatural union, and what God joins should not be divided. God joined it together. You see, God hates the putting away of our spouse for every cause. And even when we have cause, according to Scripture, because of the cause of fornication, even then we should seek restoration, not run to division. We as Christians should not initiate divorce. We should never go down that line. Christian marriages should model Christ and the church. Because we are of a fallen world, all relations are unattended, head toward decay. You understand that. 
It doesn't take long before a relationship that is strong heads into decay very quickly unless it's attended and cared for and restored with a servant's heart covered with grace at peace with our spouse. We should seek restoration not on an annual basis or on a 10-year basis, but on a daily basis. Seeking to make sure our hearts are right. You say this morning that a hard heart is at the root of divorce. And so therefore, we, every person in this room, whether you're married or unmarried, this morning you should guard your heart. Check your heart on a daily basis. God, is my heart tender? Is it tender before you? Is my heart, is it, is it so that my heart is grieved by my sin before it's grieved by your sin? I think too often we as Bible-believing Christians are more grieved with the sin outside the church than we are grieved with the sin in the church, much less the sin that is in our own heart. God, keep my heart tender. Does my sin offend God? It does. Am I even aware of it? And too often we are not. And so this morning, I want to make it very clear If you have gone through a divorce, you are not a second-class citizen. You are not a second-class Christian around here. That's not the heart of it at all. The heart of it is, and, and here's the interesting thing. I've never met a couple who's gone through divorce and now married and trying to serve the Lord that would say, I highly recommend divorce. Nobody's ever said that to me. They would all say, I wish I could have avoided it. I've heard people say, if I knew what I knew now, if I had learned then, if I knew then what I know today, and they would warn every one of our young people away from it, and they would warn them to make wise decisions. But let me say this this morning, all we can do is start right where we are for the glory of God and go forward. If you've been betrayed by a spouse and left abandoned, God knows where you are, he loves you where you are, and he's not done with you. If you found yourself abandoned in a divorce and now you find yourself just hurting because you just found out there's some kind of grieving sin in your marriage, God has not abandoned you. He is still for you and he wants restoration and he's able. And what we do is we can't serve God yesterday and we can't serve God tomorrow. Today is the only day we can serve him. And today we march forward for the glory of God honoring him with the work he's given us to do. So I challenge you this morning with that. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you now. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Father, I pray that what has been said today would be clearly understood, not because they're my words, but because they're from your word. And what I pray, Father, that it would be understood in a way that would bring correction and healing and instruction to your people. Lord, help us as we walk forward as a church to help those that are hurting, to encourage those that are broken and put them back together to seek restoration. And Father, help us to stand boldly upon the word of God all the while. And Lord, we are not sufficient for these matters but you are our sufficiency. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen. Let's stand together.